This is Liberal Talk on General Cardiology. I'm Dr. Dustin Arnold, Chief Medical Officer at Unity Point Health St. Luke's Hospital. Joining me today is Dr. Ojas Bansel, cardiologist with St. Luke's Heart Care Clinic, uh, to discuss general cardiology, the role of a cardiologist in a patient's care when someone should see seeing a cardiologist, and much more. Dr. Bansel, welcome to the podcast, your first podcast. This is my first podcast. Yeah, welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean... Eldrazi did it. You can do it. Yeah. You know, the bar's low. <laughs> I mean, so there's no limit. Kettle Camp's been on here like two or three times. Well, I'm so sure. yeah. then it's, you know, it's, you're going to do fine. Um, but first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, we're trained. Uh, so I'm about two years, right? No, two. I've been here seven years. Really? Time flies. Oh my yes. gosh. It seems like you and Eldrazi came at the same yeah, time. Yeah, we, right? we came at the same time. Oh, wow. Yeah. Seven years? Seven years. That's That blows my mind. Yeah. So I did my internal medicine training uh, at Creighton University in Omaha. And then right after that, I went into a cardiology fellowship at the same place. And then I finished in 2016 with my general cardiology fellowship. And then I started right here. Wow. This is my first job right out of fellowship and it has been that long has it has it? now been, that i yes. think about it it's definitely before the pandemic yeah time does go fast well you've quickly established yourself as a competent and caring cardiologist and what we wanted to cover today is kind of take so you, you general cardiology how does that fit into a, a patient's care plan i mean i think cardiology definitely in the last 10 years Innovations just keep coming out. I mean, advancements, electrophysiology, structural heart yep, disease. Yep. Uh, you know, there, for a while there was just interventions and bypass yep. surgery, you know, and it really has expanded. Um, so, but there's still a role, a significant role for a cardiologist. Yes. And kind of take us through that. How, how do you see a cardiologist's role in a patient's care plan? So, as you just said, you know, the field has evolved and that was the main thing that drew me into this field. Even from the start of my training, when I did finish medical school and went into internship, things had changed. So it used to be just, you know, heart meant heart attack, bypass surgeries, and and intervention stents. But then there's been so much research uh, into this field. And every, every day, every month, we get something new, and the field has evolved. So heart is the most important organ, which keeps the blood pumping uh, through your body. Uh, and then uh, as a cardiologist, uh, you know, when patients present to us, the main symptom uh, can just be just not feeling good or short of breath or tired or dizzy or chest discomfort. That all stems from just the heart not being efficient. And then as a cardiologist, our role is to figure out what uh, aspect of that uh, function of the heart is, is uh, are we dealing with. Are we dealing with something to do with the uh, like a reduced blood flow to the heart or something to do with the reduced electrical activity or hyperactive uh, dysrhythmias uh, or slow heart function or uh, some kind of a valve problem. So uh, sometimes you also deal with uh, something called where the heart muscle gets weak. So as a cardiologist, you know, when a patient presents to us first, our job uh, is to figure out what particular uh, problem uh, is the patient presenting with, and which of those uh, particular, you know, um, elect, uh, organ systems within the heart, so to speak, is is causing that. And then we uh, have tools to help diagnose that, you know, by means of tests like echocardiograms, stress testing, Holter monitors, and such. Uh, and then it, uh, come up with a plan 
to to take care of the patient. Yeah, you know, I, I found it, you know, we talk about chest pain and very few people present with chest pain to the, yes. to the outpatient clinic. Correct. I mean, the people having a, mild, a heart attack, myocardial infarction, yeah. yeah, they show up with chest pain and they're sick. Yeah. It's, and it's obvious. Yes. I mean, you walk in and you're like, okay, yeah. you got to go to the cath lab. Yeah. You know, this guy's got a heart attack. But I've always over the years found it impressive how it simply can be fatigue. Uh, and very few people present with chest pain. I mean, so if you uh, do not keep your high index of suspicion up or what neighborhood yeah. that the people live in with risk factors, you can miss heart disease pretty easily. That is so true. Um, in particularly my, women. Yeah, particularly women. Uh, in my practice, I this, see this very often. You know, uh, some people, you know, get referred by PCP just, just because of that high clinical, you know, index of suspicion or maybe just because they have certain risk factors of family history. And as you start, you know, interviewing the patients and get into it, then there are subtle signs and symptoms that you start to pick up that points to maybe this is not just a simple fatigue or, or, or you know, some people attribute it to aging, you know. Uh, it, it's uh, sometimes more than that. And, and that's why you have to have a very high uh, index of suspicion uh, for, for, for these patients. Now, how much of your practice is primary prevention? I mean, how often do you discuss cholesterol management, high blood pressure, uh, et cetera, with your patients? I think every time. Every time. That is the key. That is the key. Uh, primary prevention is the key. So, you know, uh, we, you know, we see... Uh, Prevention, I should take that, I should say, prevention is the key. Sometimes it's primary and sometimes it's secondary, you know, meaning, uh, you know, sometimes we, we get patients referred uh, to, uh, as I said, to uh, get evaluated and, you know, uh, and uh, you talk to them and, you know, about the risk factors. Uh, uh, cholesterol management, uh, blood pressure management, uh, diabetes, uh, lifestyle, you know, st uh, exercise and stress management. That's, that's a very key factor uh, in heart disease prevention, for sure. It's uh, not smoking. Yes, a hundred percent. Yeah, not yeah. smoking. Yeah. Um, so those are the top six, seven things that go into keeping, you know, having a good, healthy, uh, heart healthy life. What What about the uh, aspirin? You know, I think a lot of listeners uh, have been prescribed aspirin, whether it's primary, prior to having an event, or secondary. What What is the role of aspirin at this time? Aspirin is uh, a, a very, has been a topic of debate, uh, and there's a lot more uh, research uh, that's been gone into it, especially in the recent recent years. Uh, one thing is clear: uh, people who've had an event, a heart attack or stroke, 100% benefit from being being on aspirin. Uh, as far as in terms of primary prevention, people who have not had any cardiac event or stroke the role of aspirin now is pretty limited and we do not routinely prescribe uh, aspirin for primary prevention use if and somebody's already on it do you just keep them on it no no you, you'll take them yeah off of we'll it. take them off there's a very small subset of people who may benefit from it but again the the aspirin the reason behind we need to know what the reason behind not routinely prescribing aspirin is because it's not a benign drug. No, yeah, no. no. If if asp if we invented aspirin yesterday, yeah, it'd be about eleven bucks a pill. Yeah, and it'd be prescription. Prescri yes. Um, and it yeah, it would be 
because the the drug comes with some potential yeah. side effects. It's so a powerful medication. Powerful, it is a very powerful med. So I that's why a routine use of aspirin is not recommended uh, anymore. It makes sense. Yeah. Um, it's interesting how the things change over time. You know, you're saying that, and I was thinking back uh, when I first started in practice, 1996. Uh, you know, people came in with heart attacks, and you cooled them down. Then you did a nuclear stress test and to see if there was a deficit. And if there was fixed, you just, you didn't do anything. You just put yeah. them on medicine, you know, and then the Denmark study and, you know, getting people a cath lab sooner. And it reminds me, I had a, a an internist who was my patient. He was late in his late nineties at the time. And he was telling me like when he first started, you just, people had heart attacks. You put him in bed for a month. Yes. That Said, was okay, the go, go, to, yeah. go to bed for a month, go lay in bed for a month. And then. Yeah, and that's just mind-boggling now. But that was a standard of care, you know. Yeah, so so sometimes I wonder, will my grandkids go? Can you believe my grandpa managed people's cholesterol for heart disease? You know, I mean, you wonder. You know, sometimes you're doing this stuff, and you're like, okay, it's like a hundred years from now, they'll say, oh, can you believe that they actually thought cholesterol is important? Yeah, uh, things change over time. I think there will come a pill which you could take, and it would sort of take care of dissolve or dissolve cholesterol completely. Yeah, or take it. I think technology is evolving so much um, that uh, if you're having a heart attack, I think your your smart watches or your devices could could tell or you know certain changes in your body and warn you uh, about it. So I think it's it sounds futuristic, but I think it's it, all these I, things I, are coming. Yeah, I can remember that when the the pacers defibrillators first came out and became routine how they would ping cell phone towers if you had like a non-sustained arrhythmia. Yeah. You know, the patient get a call patient from the doctor the next day yeah. say, hey, yeah, you, yesterday you had, you know. I And that blew my mind. I thought that, you know, now it's the electrophysiology and all that's advanced way past that, of course. Um, how often do you see in-stage heart failure like we used to? You know, it seems like now with defibrillators and advancements in electrophysiology that you just, it doesn't feel like I see as many patients with the EF of 10 or 15 anymore that, you know, they, that with advancements. I mean, is that still a significant part of a cardiologist's practice? It is still a good part of the cardiology practice, but you're right. It's not as big as it used to be. Yeah. Uh, but it's still a, you know. Which is a good thing. Yeah, I'm which not, is a good I, thing. Just, yeah. And that's mainly because of uh, uh, advent of a few things, as you mentioned, you know. One is uh, newer medications for these patients for heart failure uh, that have come up in the last uh, in, uh, uh, in in the last decade or five years. Uh, you know, we have had new medications to take care of uh, heart failure patients. Uh, just to give a few examples, like uh, Entresto uh, was one of them, and uh, and uh, uh, some other actually diabetes medications that are actually helpful and we know help improve heart function. So those have dramatically changed the, you know, the, a big paradigm shift in, the, in taking care of heart failure. And then comes the second piece to it, which is more advanced and technology-based, uh, which involves certain special kinds of pacemakers, like bi bioventricular pacemakers and such, uh, that have really helped improve uh, uh, heart function. And then third thing is a lot of these patients have or had used to have arrhythmias in conjunction that would cause more heart failure. And now we have, you know, our electrophysiologists, uh, you know, uh, 
that can take care of those successfully with uh, with both newer medications and ablations. Yeah, you know, procedures. Like yeah. Procedures to, to take care of uh, t- that. That has, you know, led to improvement uh, in that field and less and less patients um, um, have this end-stage uh, heart failure and cardiomyopathy now. Um, with... Do you think you see less in your practice, less valvular heart disease with less rheumatic? Because it used to be in my practice, <coughs> oh. you know, people born before penicillin yeah. had rheumatic heart disease, yep. right? Yep. And they live long enough. Or, or Eskimos, people, yeah. native populations that didn't have opportunities to have amoxicillin when they were mm-hmm. children, right? Yeah. Do you, do you see less of that? I mean, it seems like with tavern. So, so yes, uh, we see less of those rheumatic type valve disease anymore. But in general, I feel the valve disease is more now compared to before. Really? Way more than before. What, what's your theory on that? Uh, my theory on that is... is the, you can make up in something because I'm no, not believing No, my theory is, is uh, uh, going back to what we just, just uh, d- d- discussed. Because of the, you know, the medications and the newer techniques, uh, people are living longer, living healthier. Uh, you know, the median survival age back, you know, uh, you know, 50 years was 63, 64. Yeah, that's hard to believe. And, and, and now we are at 74, 75. So b- because people, you know, we live longer, we live healthier. Uh, the valves in general have a, some, some people not a, have an inherent, you know, so to speak, a life. You know, they they start degenerating, disintegrating um, uh, over time, and they attract some uh, you know deposition of plaque and calcium just 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 by you know wear and tear, everyday work. So the longer it works, I think there is a little more wear and tear each time. And now patients are presenting in, in their you know late 70s, 80s, or even 90s for that matter uh, with degeneration of valve, like the mitral valve causing leaking you know leakiness, like mitral regurgitation or aortic stenosis, narrowing of aortic valve. So we are taking care of more and more patients now uh, uh, with, uh, with, with a basically degenerative type of valve disease compared to, you know, infection or rheumatic disease related heart disease. And that has led us into uh, newer techniques and technology uh, to take care of these. Right, yeah. Because a lot of our patients now are elderly. And uh, instead of putting them through a, you know, a big major heart surgery, open heart surgery, now we have uh, newer, minimally invasive uh, catheter-based techniques and procedures to take care of these valves. Yeah, it seems like something new comes out. Yeah. You know, every, I, every... Oh, I got to chase after Crony and Kettle Camp all yeah, the time because you got yes, something new every, coming out Every, every six months it's yeah, evolving yeah. and it's getting... It's, it is. So I feel old just how I look at the literature and the development in the VAP, you know. I graduated, you know, finished six, seven, seven years ago. And in that realm, th- this whole thing, you know, the field has evolved so much. And we have specialists, in, in, you know, Dr. Crony and Kettle Camp in our, in our team uh, who have really honed that skill to... to uh, take care of those complex structural structural heart disease, yeah. uh, valve disease patients. It is fascinating. Yeah. COVID-19, whether it's the infection itself or the vaccine associated with myocarditis, did you see some of those cases? I did. Did you? I did. Uh, Tell us about that. Very. Uh, I've seen, so the the COVID-19, so let me first talk about, you know, the the uh, the virus itself related uh, myocarditis. Uh, I have seen uh, some people uh, present in the hospital when they're admitted, like a 
pretty profound uh, fulminant uh, myocarditis uh, affecting you know the heart muscle is you know get you, ef is low you know down, gets down uh, and then uh, also seen some more subtle forms of of this uh, which doesn't quite affect the heart you know the myocarditis the, the muscle but it does lead to some arrhythmic type of events you know especially some uh, you know palpitations or heart racing or things things like that which i think are more subtle forms of just the same same problem uh, have i so i've seen a lot of them re recover but it's taking a long time compared to some of the other viral myocarditis which i saw would recover faster usually within a month these have taken, well, some of my patients, it, it's taken them longer to recover from these. Uh, as far as vaccines go, uh, in my practice, I can just say I've seen one that, that had. You could say it was related to the vaccine. It, it was younger. Yeah, one. And, and this is a person who has had, uh, you know, my history of my, from a viral myocarditis before, uh, even in the past. So I think that, so he had a recurrent episode after after the vaccine interesting uh, yeah but it was mild um and he you know it was short-lived and recovered pretty quick but i think it was a younger patient who had sort of some kind of genetic predisposition to this and uh and did did get a case of that yeah and it, it i mean definitely you've seen an uptick in the number of cases of myocarditis in younger people whether yeah. it's the vaccine or the virus than prior to the pandemic yes you know, just on the hospital service, you'd have one every winter, young person, usually you had this persistent cough. They didn't show yeah. up in heart failure, yeah. you know, just this yeah. persistent cough, multiple courses of antibiotics, you know, and they find out that's they've got a, had a coxsackie myocarditis yeah. and they usually get better. I mean, some people, as you know, can get yeah. transplanted, but yeah, you definitely seen an increase in that. I have, yeah. Even the number of ER patients that I've seen or the hospital side, it's, it's a... It was higher this year compared to yeah. what I've seen before on service. It's, yeah. it's interesting to relate. I mean, some countries in Europe don't recommend it vaccines for under the age of fifty because yeah. of that. You know, and I certainly have changed my approach to that. You know, and looked at it as we always did. You know, yeah. to say, or what are the risk factors here? Yeah, is there a benefit risk to benefit ratio? As you do that every day. Um, high blood pressure. How much of your practice is just blood pressure management? It's a it's a good part of is it? Uh, yeah of my practice. Uh, again, it comes with usually uh, uh, you know a lot of it is done by primary cares you know routine blood pressure management. But when uh, it comes to becoming resistant, where where you need two or three different medications uh, and such, then I do get referrals for them. Um, mainly to AC if there is any other underlying cause, secondary, se secondary cause, cause uh, for, for it, and to see uh, if there are some medication, you know, adjustments we can do. Uh, and then the other piece is, you know, high blood pressure, you know, is, is, the, is a big, big piece, a uh, big risk factor to heart disease. So uh, patients who, uh, who have heart disease that I see who have high blood pressures in conjunction uh, I do take care of uh, that as well. And how often, a, patient that you're following for blood pressure, how often would you see him every year? Uh, it depends. Uh, if if it so in the you know once we get them stabilized uh, enough on the medication, then it's uh, every six months. 
but but I I, I strongly recommend, you know, a, mo a lot of it is done now with home blood pressure monitoring. So that's why I, uh, what I encourage all my patients to start learning uh, home blood pressure. It's a very powerful, very, uh, you know, good tool to do. So for uh, high blood pressure, I, I have a lot of patients doing home blood pressure monitoring. And uh, uh, I have them send uh, blood pressure readings, you know, on a monthly basis. Uh, it's a good habit for everybody who has high blood pressure to check your blood pressure yeah. every day. Yeah. Well, and I think people don't understand it's a dynamic measure. Yeah, it is. Yeah. You know, you can't just take one yeah, and, reading and know that you, in the your office. Blood pressure and, is controlled. Yeah. yeah. That's either controlled or uncontrolled. Uncontrolled. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Totally There's agree. a new entity that is being, you know, talked about in research, uh, the, uh, the, the evolution of mass hypertension. Uh, your blood pressure is uh, good in the office, but it's actually higher at home. Uh, 10 points higher. It's the opposite of what you hear, the white cord hypertension. And that is also being uh, recognized as a, as a new entity. And hence, you know, the, the more monitoring at home uh, for that to, to find that out. I used to have a 1510 rule. So people would say, oh, my blood pressure is always high when I come in the office. I'd say, well, my rule is systolic, let's subtract 15 and let's sub subtract 10 from the diastolic. You know, and if they were still high at that time, we made adjustments. Yeah. Yeah, it works. So usually they, they're more relaxed at home. And yeah. so we, we, uh, we got it. So, but, uh, you know, the, the new blood pressure monitoring systems are pretty good now. So I definitely we, think, we, we, yes, we get I, I, they, good data compared to the that, original ones that came out. Yeah. yeah, they were very, yeah. Um, well, it's like a treadmill, you know. I mean, the the money in the treadmill is the motor. The computer yeah. stuff now is cheap, you know. I mean, it's same with the that, and it's quite advanced. Um so we've talked about let's keep the diabetes under control, no smoking, no cholesterol, um, active lifestyle, uh, keep the blood pressure controlled. Did I miss? Did we miss anything for heart disease? Diet. Diet. Yeah, diet involves uh, you know uh, uh, lots of uh, fruits and vegetables, six to seven servings of fresh fruits and vegetables. You know, one thing we didn't talk about, and, and I think we should because I think it's important for listeners to understand the correlation is obstructive sleep apnea. Oh, yes. And heart disease. Yes. Uh, that is uh, uh, that is another another uh, risk factors for heart disease that is uh, I'm seeing more and more of, uh, more and more. And it's not and just, I mean, I've got a 19-inch neck, 19.5, something like that. Um but there's skinny people that have yes. obstructive sleep apnea. I think you have to consider it. So yeah, it's for everybody. Yeah, you, you know, uh, and I. So besides, you know, some of the lifestyle uh, risk factors, you know, uh, weight or, or you know, and such. Uh, I think there's something more to it. Yeah. That that I we still completely don't know. As you said, why do some of the skinny people, you know, who who do not have the neck circumference or whatnot. Uh, abdominal uh, obesity habit, and then also comes central sleep apnea. Right. Where, where it's not because of obstruction uh, to the airway, but just they stop to, breathing. Just stop breathing. Just yeah. become apneic. So that I, uh, you know, is is one of those non-traditional, non-conventional risk factors. These uh, that we definitely have to look into, because uh, that is associated with uh, almost every aspect of heart disease now. It's in, it, it it's, is, it's yes. Surprise, you know, it, it's a heart attack, you know, blockages, arrhythmias for sure is a big one, especially atrial fibrillation um, uh, and uh, valve, valve diseases now. 
uh, are also uh, uh, being caused by sleep apnea, especially the right-sided valve disease, like you know, heart failures. Uh, so yes, almost every 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 aspect of cardiac care now that that does play a role, and uh, that has to be screened, have a, a very high index of suspicion, and treated appropriately. Right. Uh, uh, to take well, care of that. It, and it makes sense. I mean, yeah. you hold your breath yeah. for you're, 30 seconds. 30 se- you're not getting oxygen. For eight hours, yeah. Yeah. you know, you're hypoxic. and That does you know. take a toll on your on your efficiency of your heart function, 100%. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm glad we didn't skip over yeah. that because that. Um, why, why did you choose, you chose cardiology because of the innovations. I mean, what else, what else attracted you to cardiology? Uh, you know, it's just, uh, there's just, there's so much in this field, you know, uh, both from how the, how the patient presents, you know, you, it, it, a lot lies in, you know, your first interaction, you learn so much uh, about the patient and that kind of gives you a hint as to what, what possibly is going on. And then uh, in this field, there's, there's so much, uh, or, or there are so many tools like diagnostic, you know, tools available to help uh, find out exactly, very precisely. Uh, it's a pretty precise field as to what is going on. Yeah. You know, the rhythm. And then once you diagnose, then there are so many tools, again, uh, as to take it to the next step to take care of it. So I, I just find it, you know, found it you know, very fascinating to just have so much uh, available to help t- take care of the patients and that really and made an impact you know it helps improve their uh, quality of life and and uh, you know longevity and Absolutely. it can be in different settings every every possible you, you know office based uh, you, you know or is is uh, you can you can take care of uh, then emergency settings you know or hospital and then and both you, you take care of patients in the hospital and then you get to see them doing so you know well in the clinic so i think the whole whole uh, you know the length and breadth of this field uh, just got me so attracted and when well your heart to do it <laughs> your heart starts beating prior to being born and yes it goes until you uh, die right i mean never stops never so. stops well thanks for joining me you did thank a great you. job thank you and your enthusiasm uh, for cardiology and your compassion towards patients is measurable you're doing a great job I'm thank you so much glad you're yeah. here i you know, and I can't believe it's been seven years. Seven years. We kept you. Yeah. Yeah, I think we made the right decision. <laughs> Dr. Bansel, thank you for joining me and inform our listeners about general cardiology. Once again, this is Dr. Ogis Bansel, cardiologist with St. Luke's Heart Care Clinic. To learn more, visit unipoint.org backslash heart care. Thank you for listening to Live Well Talk On. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your family, friends, neighbors, strangers, about our podcast. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, be well.